We are continuing our way through the book of 2 Samuel. Remember where we left off last week? Uh, the remaining, uh, at least viable, uh, heir of Saul's kingdom, Ishbosheth, uh, was, uh, was murdered and killed by men from his own tribe, uh, completely uh, dis- not associated at all with David. Uh, David, God's chosen and anointed king, is the one that we've been waiting and anticipating and seeing him come to rule and reign over God's people, hoping and longing for the coming of God's kingdom. And up to this point, David has only ruled over one tribe in Israel. It's going to begin to change this week here in chapter 5. And so as we look here in... Uh, God's Word together this morning. Uh, we want to continue to be those who, who hear the voice of our God coming from His Scriptures, that our hearts would be prepared for the coming of our King and the establishment of His, His Kingdom. So look with me, if you would, chapter 5 of uh, the book of Second Samuel. It's on page 257, if you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats. We're going to look at the whole uh, chapter together this morning. So please follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And Yahweh said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before Yahweh, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David, And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater for Yahweh, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that Yahweh had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphet, Eliphelet. 
When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of Yahweh, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And Yahweh said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, Yahweh has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of Yahweh, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come, up, uh, come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for Yahweh has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as Yahweh commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Let's pray. Our living God, we thank You that You speak, that You reveal Yourself to Your people, that You continue to be at work now, making known and revealing Yourself that we might hope and rest in You as the one true and living God. We pray that Jesus would be exalted through the preaching of His Word. That Holy Spirit, You would apply Your Word and the Gospel to the hearts of those who are here, that all of us would look to Christ, trusting and resting in Him as our King. In His name we pray. Amen. Uh, this morning, the uh, uh, way that I want us to approach uh, this passage to, to understand what it is that God's seeking to teach us the, this morning is by way of comparison. Uh, first, we want to uh, com- uh, compare the, the people and their response that we see in this passage. We want to compare the power of the gods that we encounter in this passage. And we want to uh, compare the posture of the kings that we encounter here. So the people, the power, and the posture. So kids, if you want to keep track of words, those would be three good ones to to mark there on your sermon notes page. Uh, People, power, posture, all Ps. First, let's look at the the people. Comparing the people, and, uh, and we want to look at their response. Their response to their God and to God and and King. First, notice uh, who we it is that we encounter first: that the elders of Israel. Notice what they say there in in verse two. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And Yahweh said to you, "You shall be shepherd of my people Israel." and you shall be prince over Israel. Now, here we have, finally, all of the elders of the tribes coming to David and saying, we recognize and acknowledge that you are king. Not just that you're king now, but that God had already foretold and proclaimed and chosen and designated you as the king and ruler over God's people. But, 
Remember who these elders are. Up to this point, they have been in rebellion against the revelation of who God's king is. In fact, they've been in rebellion against God himself as their king because it's these same elders who earlier in 1 Samuel rejected God as being king over them, who said, we want a king like the other nations because we don't want to trust and depend and rest in our God to defend and fight and provide for us. We want to look to the strength of men. And therefore, God gave them over to their rebellion and gave them the king that they wanted. And even when that king came to his end, when Saul was judged and removed, how did these elders respond? Did they immediately recognize and say, we have been in rebellion and sinning against rejecting our God and rejecting the anointed one, David? No. They instead turned their uh, allegiance and doubled down in their rebellion and gave themselves to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, not God's anointed and chosen one over his people. You see, it's the response of, of these elders up to this point has been one of rebellion and rejection. Rebellion against God and rejection of his king. But here we begin to see a change. We see a people who are repenting. We see a people who are recognizing what God has said about who David is and in light of God's revelation and his words spoken through the prophet Samuel are turning, turning from their rebellion and their rejection of their God and his king and turning and submitting to their God through the anointed one that he has placed over them. And they come and want and seek David to be their king. And how, how does the king respond to these rebels who repent and submit and acknowledge that he is their king? Notice what David does. So it tells us in verse 3, King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before Yahweh, and they anointed David king over them. You see, God's king, when people acknowledge their rebellion and turn from their sin and submit to the king, trusting in him and his grace and his mercy, he extends forgiveness and enters into covenant with people who respond in this way. Notice, these aren't the only people in this, this passage. The Jebusites come up next in verse 6. The king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you won't come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. Here they begin to mock God's anointed one and king, saying that you're so incompetent and unable to conquer us that even blind and lame people will bring an end to you and will thwart your purpose and your attack against our, our people. And so here we see that, that the, the, the resistance of uh, the Jebusites here is one of mocking and ridicule of God and his king. 
They're not actively going out and pursuing David to attack, but when they hear and it's revealed to them who he is, their response is mocking. Now, how in the world would they know anything about David or anything about the God of Israel? Well, notice what it tells us about the Jebusites is they're inhabitants of the land. They've lived and dwelled in the promised land for a while. They'd have known of the God of Israel and his mighty acts and words and deeds on behalf of his people. They would have known, like the rest of the inhabitants of the land, that God had given this land to his people Israel and therefore was acting in judgment on the people of the land. But not just here, but from the book of Joshua and all throughout Judges, the people of the Jebusites continue to resist, and here they mock God and his king. And also, we see the Philistines in verses 17 and following. What's their response? When they hear and it's announced to them that David is the king and ruler over God's people, what's their response? tells us there in verse 17, all the Philistines went up to search for David to finally acknowledge and make him their king? No. To continue to attack, to rebel, to say, we are going to put an end to this kingdom. Do these responses sound familiar? It's what we've seen, and we keep going back to this psalm. Psalm 2. Why do the people's rage, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain and set themselves up against the Lord and against His anointed? Because when it is announced to the world that God is King and Ruler and that He has placed His authorized One as the Lord and King over all things, all of us want to reject that message. And until our God does a work and a movement in our hearts, humbling us, exposing to us our sin and our great need for Him, and that our only hope is in His mercy, then all of us will continue to respond as the Jebusites responded, as the Philistines responded. But what we see is that God in His mercy when we humble ourselves and turn from our sin and call out to the Anointed One for mercy and grace, He extends forgiveness. Do we not see this ultimately fulfilled in Jesus? Who has been demonstrated and shown, not just to the people of God, but to the entire world, that He is God's King the divine ruler over all things. Through in His resurrection, Jesus was demonstrated to be the Son of God in power. That language isn't just speak of His divinity, but it speaks to His role as being King and Lord over all things. And now that it is clear through the reality and the historical truth of Jesus' resurrection, that happened in space and time and history, that is not myth, that is not legend, that is not fable. Jesus of Nazareth went into the tomb a dead man and he rose in power and glory and might. And that is the proclamation that Jesus is king. And so the question is, what will be our response? Will we persist in our rebellion, mocking Jesus and saying, you're not going to 
control my life and my heart? Do we continue to rebel and push back against Him? Saying, you're not going to take control of this area of my life. I'm in charge, Jesus. Or, will we humble ourselves, recognizing that our sovereign King is a merciful and gracious and compassionate King. And when we come to Him in humility, setting aside our claims of authority and control and say, I want to serve you, that He responds with grace and mercy and forgiveness. What? What a gracious and merciful God. Why would He respond like that to us? We've compared the people in this passage, but now let's, let's look at the, the power of the gods that we encounter in this passage and compare the power that the gods in this passage exercise on behalf of their people. First, let's look at the God of, the God of Israel. Notice, the first thing that we encounter and hear about the God of Israel in verse 2 is this. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And Yahweh said to you, He speaks. He's not a distant, aloof God. Our God exists. He is real. He is there. He is not silent. He reveals Himself to His people. Uh, in verse 6, we meet the Jebusites. And we may wonder, why in the world is David going up against the Jebusites? It's because David has confidence that the God he serves exercises his power on behalf of his people to fulfill his covenant promises. You see, the Jebusites were mentioned way back in Genesis 15 to a guy named Abram. Later, his name would be changed to Abraham. Listen to what God said to Abram when he entered into covenant with him. In Genesis 15, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. That's speaking of the animals that Abraham had cut in half as the Lord was entering into a covenant with him. And on that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Up to this point, we've been waiting. It seems like, is God ever going to fulfill His promises to Abraham? And slowly but surely He is doing it. And here we see evidence that we do not serve an impotent God, but one when He makes promises, although the fulfillment of them may delay, they may not come in the time and the speed that we want, He does use and exercise His power on behalf of His people to accomplish His promises. And notice how that comes out in this passage in verse 7. They say you're not going to be able to take it, but verse 7 tells us that David did take it. And in fact, David lived in it 
beginning to fully establish and bring to bear the covenant promises of God for the land being provided for the people. But also notice, as he continues to establish this kingdom, as God exercises his power, in verse 10, David becomes greater and greater. Why? Because Yahweh, the God of hosts, was with him. God uses his power on behalf of his people to fulfill his promises to bring about his king. In verse 12, it emphasizes it again. David knew that Yahweh had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Why is the kingdom being established? It's because Yahweh is working. It's because Yahweh is doing the the building and the establishing. He is the living and true and powerful God who works and operates to fulfill His purposes. And then verse 19, David's wondering, what do I do about the Philistines? So he inquires of God. How does God use His power? He hears the prayers of David. He answers the prayer of David saying, yes, go up against the Philistines. And then it tells us that he battles on behalf of David, bringing about the victory that he accomplished. You see, as we look at the God of Israel revealed to us in this passage, we see that he is the living and powerful and active God who works and establishes his covenant promises. Compare the God of Israel, though, to the gods of the Philistines. Do you see how they are mentioned? They don't even get a full sentence, but they are touched on in this passage. Look in verse 21. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. What do we see about the power of of the gods of the Philistines. They have none. In defeat, the gods cannot retreat. Why? Because their people forget them and leave them on the ground. They're unable to move. They're unable to fight. They're unable to walk unless the people of the Philistines pick up their gods of stone and clay and metal They can do nothing. In fact, it tells us they can't even defend and protect themselves because David and his men carried them away. What kind of God can be carried away by a man? And when we see uh, the companion uh, account of this in uh, 1 Chronicles, what we find out is that what David and his men do is they gather up all these idols and they light them on fire and they burn them. You see, what we're seeing is that the gods, the false gods of the world, and any god other than the one true and living God have zero power. They will deliver no one. They cannot fight. They cannot work. They have no power. Therefore, they will never exercise it on your behalf to trust and hope in any other god but the God of Israel is to damage yourself. Uh, In Hinduism, there's uh, multiple festivals that happen uh, each year for uh, the worship of of their gods through their idols. One of the things that they do is they they spend uh, hundreds and sometimes thousands of dollars to construct new idols 
representations, images of their god, their gods. They bring them down to, uh, uh, to, to the shore of, of a river, and there they set up shrines to them, and they worship them, and they pray before them, and they dance and celebrate around them. And then the festival, at its culmination, they take their idols, and they have to pick them up and lift them and carry them out into the water, and they immerse them in the river. So a couple of things to notice. They must pick their gods up. The gods can't even move from the shore to the water. Once they get into the water, guess what happens? The god of the gods made of plaster and paper mache disintegrate in the water. They do not even have the power to sustain themselves against the water of a calm river. And these idols break up, and what is beginning to happen is they're clogging the rivers in India. And the government is starting to enact laws and restricting people from doing this because it's destroying the river. And it's destroying the lives of the people in India. Is that not a true, explicit picture of what happens when we give our hearts and our lives to false gods? That they can do nothing but destroy us. Limit and tear down and corrupt the quality of life and the lives that we have been given by our God. But we do not serve gods of clay and stone and wood. We serve the living and true God who has exercised His power on behalf of His people by taking on flesh, entering into our world. Jesus says, I have the power and the authority to lay my life down to deliver my people. And I have the power and authority to raise it up again. And we serve a risen, exalted, and as we affirm this morning, an ascended King who has power and He exercises it on behalf of you and me, His people. Why would we give ourselves to any other God? You might say, well, I don't have any paper mache gods. The only time I ever see them is maybe if I go to the Chinese restaurant and they're right there beside the, the cash register. Fortune Kitty or whatever it's called. But do we not hope for and long for redemption and deliverance in things other than the living, active, mighty, powerful God who speaks and reveals Himself and operates on behalf of His people? Where do you go in your anxiety, in your fears, if it is to anyone or anything or anywhere other than Jesus, your King, then you are fleeing to an idol, a God that you must prop up yourself because it can do nothing to serve and redeem and deliver you. And the ultimate result will be nothing but disappointment and pain. For a little while it may appear like it's doing better, but what do we see here? The ultimate result will be that you will suffer. Why turn? Why go there? Turn to the God who's living, 
and active and powerful, who has given himself to redeem you, the one who is gracious and merciful and mighty to save, who says, when you turn and look to me, I will redeem and save you. Everything that you have or that you need, I have. And I'm not stingy. I will give you what you need. How do you know? Has he withheld anything from us? He's given us his son. As God's people, as we live life in this world, anticipating and longing for the coming of the king and the coming of the kingdom, it may seem like it's delaying. We may want to turn our hearts elsewhere, but remember what we see in this passage. We need to turn our hearts to the living and powerful and active God who enters into covenant with His people through our exalted King. So we've looked at the, the, the people and their response to God and King. We've looked at the power of the gods exercised on behalf of their people. And lastly, let's compare the posture. The posture of the King towards His people. Notice what it tells us in verse 12. And David knew that Yahweh had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Why is David king? For his glory? For his honor? No. Why has David been given this position and been enabled to bring about deliverance and have the presence of the Lord with him? Is it for his fame, for his sake? No. It tells us that David's kingdom is being established and exalted by God for the sake of his people Israel. You see, the king's position and his posture, what it should be towards his people is recognizing that I am here for the benefit and the blessing of another. I'm not to exalt myself over those that God has entrusted for me. In fact, we, we've seen that. This is the, what God communicated back in, uh, in Deuteronomy 17. Listen to... Uh, what God instructed the people and said was true of the king. This is the beginning in verse 18. And when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh as God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. You see, when the king is functioning properly, he understands who his God is. He rightly relates to his God by always following his revealed will, obeying him walking in righteousness and holiness and never exalting himself over his brothers, but always seeing him being lesser than them and giving himself 
for their flourishing and their growth. And we've seen examples of David doing that. Has he not put himself on the line to deliver his people before Goliath? Going before the Philistines, battling and delivering God's people. But also what we see in this passage is that David fails to consistently live with this posture toward his people of recognizing it's not for my sake, but for the sake of the people. Look in verse 13. Even though David knows this, that God has exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel, what does David do? He took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David. Even though it tells us David knew this, something new is brought up here. Before, we've already known David has been adding wives contrary to God's law. But here, concubines come up. David is beginning to view the female subjects of his kingdom as those that he can take and bring into his household to use as he pleases. To please himself, to get him more children so he can have more power and authority. He's failing to see, I exist for the sake of them, not them for the sake of me. But yet here we see David doing nothing but taking for his own sake, for his own honor, for his own glory. See, David is not going to be the ultimate sufficient king, for he fails. We're going to see how this begins to pan out in David's heart response toward his people. But this is the good news. We do have and serve a king who as he exercises his kingship, he does so for, on behalf of his people. Jesus, as he was teaching his disciples, he told them, I don't want you to rule and reign like the Gentiles who lord it over their people, but I want you to be like me, the Son of Man who came into this world, not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Our King enters into the world with the posture of what? of service, of humbling himself to give himself on behalf of his people. In fact, Paul later in the book of Philippians, as he's reflecting on this posture of our king toward his people, calls us to have this same mind and this same heart. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the exalted one and will be the eternally exalted one. 
But what happened before the exaltation? It was the humiliation. It was Jesus who said, I am entering into this world for the sake of my people. Do you grasp that? Your God, the infinite and eternal one, took on flesh in order to deliver and save you. He did it for his own glory, yes, but he did it for your sake. Who is, who is this God? Why would he do such a thing for a sinner and a rebel like me? Because of his love. Because of his compassion. If this is true, if we have a God and a king who relates to his people in this gracious and merciful and giving way, then why? Why would I ever want to look elsewhere? Why would I ever want to persist in my rebellion? Why would I ever want to say there's any part of my life or my heart that I don't want to give to Him? People of God, do you see who Jesus, your King, is? His power, His sufficiency, His grace. He has given His life for you. May we trust Him. May we walk with Him. May we hope and rest only in our powerful and sufficient King. Let's pray. God, we thank You for the good news of the Gospel. We thank You that Jesus, our King, rules and reigns. Jesus, we thank You that You have given Yourself for us, Your people. Uh, we pray and ask that You would continue to humble our hearts more and more, that we would see how great You are, how much we need You, and how sufficient Your work is to deliver and save Your sheep. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.